Good morning, church. My name is Carrie, and I'm your scripture reader today. If you would please remain standing for the reading of scripture. Today is our first Sunday of Advent, and it's only fitting that it, we're also starting at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So if you could turn there or scroll there. Genesis is like probably my favorite book of the Bible, and I think for me it's because it's it's my origin story. It's your origin story. It's where it all began, um, and it's the greatest love story of all time, and you're still living it. You're in the moment of this story. So turn with me to chapter 2, verse 4, and it's going to be a long one, so get ready. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedlam and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gahan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for we she was taken from man. This is why the man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the servant said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit of the trees, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins of the man for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away into the garden, from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's a long passage, right? I, uh, my wife sent me this video of uh, this guy. He was he was a preaching. He was a guest preacher at a at a church, and he stood up and he said, "You know, I'm I'm uh, happy to be with you guys this morning." He said, "Last week I was uh, I was uh, visiting a bookshop here in town, and I came across in this bookshop I came across this uh, really old ancient book of spells." And he said, and so it was amazing, all these really old incantations and magic spells. He said, so I purchased it. I brought it here this morning, and I'm going to open it. I'm going to read some of these ancient spells to you. And he said, he said, uh, he paused for a second. He said, I can tell by the look on some of your faces that you're extremely uncomfortable with the idea of me reading a book of ancient spells because you think it might get some, like, demonic, you know, voodoo juice on you or something. Like, he said, but... Um, but at the same time, it's, it's common for us to believe that we can hear and read God's word and think that we will be unaffected and unchanged by it. So we're not afraid to read God's word here at Red Hill, and we're not afraid to read long passages of it. It's not common because it's not always entertaining to just actually read God's word out loud, but it's so good for us to hear it, to hear the whole context and to hear the whole passage um, 
In fact, one of the commands that Paul gave to Timothy was to make sure that the scripture is read out loud, that you can hear it out loud. And uh, this Advent season, um, we, our, our Advent series title is part of the story. And what we're going to do is just kind of take different parts of the story of the coming of Jesus and try to unpack them a little bit. And I want you to know right off the bat that I've been fighting a cold all week and I have a lot of cold medicine in me this morning and I'm not 100% sure what all is gonna come out this morning. So I'm thankful it's a bit smaller crowd and hopefully a bit friendlier audience that will hopefully show a bit more grace. Um, But I, I wanted to walk through this passage because the Garden of Eden is really the setting. It's really the back, the whole backdrop for how Jesus would show up and why Jesus needed to show up and what it, what it must have felt like for the whole world waiting for Jesus to show up. This Advent, I have a bit more anticipation than previous Advents. Uh, I have a bit more uh, understanding of like the excitement of waiting for something to happen and waiting for someone to come because two weeks from today, Caleb comes home from AIT. So two weeks from today, our son gets to come home. And so we're, you know, we're excited for that. We're looking forward and we're eager for that arrival. And that, that anticipation, that anticipatory feeling, it's like woven into Christmas time for us. And, and I, I want you to harness that feeling that you have and, and to apply that to Jesus, to understand that that feeling that's woven into the holiday season can direct your heart and your affection towards Jesus. It can draw your attention back to the one who deserves it. So what I want to do is I want to kind of quickly walk through the passage and show you just all the things, not all the things, but some of the things that God gave to humanity in the creation narrative as we see it this morning, starting in Genesis 2, 4 through 7. And I'm not going to read through all these. In fact, um, this morning's message may be a little shorter than normal. It may also be a little longer than normal. I feel a little dizzy, truthfully. Um, so we'll just see what happens. But it may be a little shorter than normal. I've never had anybody tell me they wished I had preached longer. So, you know, if you get a few minutes back this morning into your day, I'm sure you won't be upset about it. But I, I want to note right out of the gate in, in verses four through seven, that the first thing that God gives to man is breath. I think it's important for us to see the gifts that God gives to us and the gifts that God gives in the creation narrative. The first thing that God gives is breath. The, the thing that God gave you, the, the first gift that God gave to you was life. I love it when you give just the perfect gift, you know, like the thing that you wanted more than anything, you get it. That, that stands for me as the first like big bike that I got, like the, the mountain bike type bike that I got. I was 10 years old and it was at my granddad and grandmother Hollis's house. And there's a video of it somewhere that you'll never see if I have anything to say about it. But if you ask Sarah, she might be able to dig it up for you. Um, but I, I came in and when you went to grandmother and granddad Hollis's house, this is my dad's mom and dad. You had to sit down and have like a formal breakfast before you got to have any presents. You know what I'm talking about? Like Grandmother Hollis would put on the Ritz, like the whole spread, silver trays, like a serious breakfast. And all you want is the present because you know the good present was at Grandmother and Granddad Hollis's house. And so we finished breakfast. Everybody goes in. The kids have to wait. And then we come in. And when I got into the room, there was my bike. And there's a video of me. And, and it's, I, I come in, I'm like, my bike, I got a new bike. And my voice is like, like 16 octaves higher than any human's voice should be, much less a man of age 10. 
you know, and, and I, was, I was so, so happy. And it didn't matter that it was three degrees outside. I grabbed the bike, I took it outside, and I, start, I just started riding it all over the place. Because one of the best ways to honor the giver of a gift is to just enjoy the gift that you've been given. It's just to enjoy it. I think it's important for us to see that part of the gift of life is that we're supposed to enjoy it. It's not exclusively what life is for. We can look in the New Testament and see Paul saying things like, you know, I, I beat my body and make it my slave for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that is absolutely part of it, disciplining ourselves and growing and maturing and making hard choices. But also, life is meant to be a gift for us. It's meant to be enjoyed. And one of the great ways that we honor God is by having joy in the gift that he gave to us. It's very, very easy for all of us to wish everything was different, to wish that we were different, to wish that we looked different, to wish that our family was different, to wish that our career was different, to wish that our income level was different, to wish that we were taller or shorter or stronger or skinnier or a different color of skin or lived in a different place or lived in a different time period. It's very easy for us to see all of the negativity. It's very easy for us to see all of the things that are wrong and broken. But it's important for us to remember that our life is a gift. The first thing that was given to us was breath. And one of the ways that we honor God is by recognizing he knew what he was doing when he made us the way that he made us, placed us where he placed us, like crafted us with all the weird intricacies that make us us, all the nuances that make us different from everybody else, and to say, I can enjoy those parts of me. You can enjoy those parts of you that make you you. We were given breath. That's the first thing we were given. In, in verse 8 through 14, we get a lot of description about the Garden of Eden and where it's located and, um, you know, plenty of uh, hucksters and Bible study people have tried to figure out exactly where the location of the Garden of Eden actually is based on the geography of these rivers and the land that produces these various elements. I'm like, guys, they, you know, God put... Warrior, like holy warriors and holy weapons to guard it. I don't think you want to find it. Like if you find it, you're going to die for sure. You will never tell anybody if you find it. You're going to be dead. But God gave us in the Garden of Eden, God gave us a place. He gave us a place. You, you cannot grow in your faith. You cannot mature in Christ. You cannot grow closer to Jesus. You cannot grow stronger in the Lord anywhere except for where you are, in the place where you actually are. The whole of your spiritual existence in this life is going to be, it's going to take place in a physical body and in a physical place. I've been to a lot of different countries. I've been to a lot of different places. There really is no place like home. I can't imagine what this home must have been like a garden planted by God, really crafted and created for the enjoyment and the care of uh, by Adam. Everything designed to provide for him, everything working just as it was supposed to, all these beautiful like rivers flowing, all these incredible jewels and precious metals all over the place. Really absolutely was paradise. We were given breath, we were given a place. 
in verse 15, says that the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. We were given work. Work's not a result of the fall. We were given something to do. We were given a meaningful task to work. It is a good thing for us to have meaningful work. It's, uh, it's really normal now for there to be sort of an existential crisis about whether or not you're doing the right thing with your life. You know, and man, I, I, like, I feel it for all of you that are under the age of about 30, like this pressure that you have to find the absolutely perfect ideal thing that you were exactly made to do and there's only one thing and if you don't find that one thing, you're gonna be discontented and unhappy forever and can I just tell you that the perfect thing that you were designed for is Eden and that's broken and that in the meantime, it's a great gift from God to have something to do and when we are the most discontented oftentimes is when we are the furthest from actual just work. When we pull ourselves out, you know, the, the key symptoms of depression are isolation, darkness, and doing nothing, right? If you see people that are like hiding in their room with the lights off and don't want to do anything, and people, uh, I was talking with Kristen this morning, like she's just came back from Africa not too long ago, and I've been to Africa a few times, and and the people in foreign countries particularly, they're so overjoyed to have something to do, like to have actual work that they can do. I, I don't feel like I'm doing a good job with this little piece right here, and I apologize, but I wanna say that work is a gift from God. It doesn't have to be the idealized, self-actualized, perfect thing for you to do for it to be a gift and for it to be meaningful and for it to be a blessing to both you and to your family. It just has to be work. So Adam is given work. Before the fall, he's given work. Not only is he given work, but in 16 and 17, it says, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die given boundaries. The, the lie from Satan is that you should have boundless freedom, but in boundless freedom is bondage. When you can do anything, what your heart usually does is the wrong thing, and you find yourself having a more and more and more constricted life. There's a gift in limitations. There's a gift in a speed limit, even though you don't like it. There's a gift in having lanes that people drive in. There's a gift in stop signs. And when those limitations are all taken away, chaos can ensue in our lives. Boundaries and limits, when given by God particularly, are a tremendous blessing to us. But we were also given a choice. Oh, sorry, we were given a wife. Adam was given a wife or a counterpart or a helper. And I, and I, and I, wanna, say, I wanna say not everyone needs to be married and not everyone will be married. Some of you will spend a life being single and will have a full, fulfilled life being single. Not everybody needs to be married, but everybody needs to be connected. 
Everybody needs to be in community. There are, a, there are a lot of people who are part of our church family that aren't yet part of a gospel community. And can I just tell you, you just, you're missing out. When I, was, when I was on staff at a church in Memphis, I had some friends who left the church and they left the church and, and, and it's, it's really, it's very normal to leave a church, by the way. It's just, this is a normal thing. You go for a while, something changes, and it's time to do something else. That's a normal thing, okay? And if the time comes for you that you need to go somewhere else, I'll help you find a great place because you don't belong to me and you don't belong to Red Hill. You belong to the Lord and you have to be obedient to him. And, and there'll be no animosity. If God leads you somewhere else, I want to help you follow Jesus. Like, that's, that's my job, to help you follow Jesus. And, but my, my friends that, uh, that were leaving our church, um, the guy, he said, he said I'm, uh, we're leaving. This is our last Sunday. I was like, man, I'm really, his name's Steve, uh, uh, not Stephen, Steve. <coughs> Excuse me. I was like, Steve, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. He's like, yeah, you want to know the worst part? And I was like, I mean, not really, but <laughs> kind of backed into a corner on this one, you know? I was like, yeah, sure. And he goes, he goes I'm going to leave, and nobody's even going to notice. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, well, that's, that's a crime in two directions, isn't it? That's a crime in two directions. Because when you come to this place, you should be known and loved. That, that's the kind of church family that we should have. You should be known and you should be loved. Absolutely, without question. And if you were gone, you should be missed. It should be felt. But it should be felt not because we don't have someone to love anymore, but because that person who knew and loved me is no longer here knowing and loving me. It's a crime in two directions. Adam was given a counterpart, a helper, a wife, because God says it's not good for him to be alone. That, that, that is not a good thing. And if you're walking through this life alone, the path to connection is not better people around you who will love you more. It's not better people around you who will be more aggressive in pulling you into community with them. The pathway is for you to come and be part of what's happening. For you to say, I want to find some people to love, not wait around for people to come and to love me. It's difficult. And I understand that, and I'll help you in any way that I can, as will so many others who are here. But I, I want to say you weren't designed to walk and experience this life alone. That's not God's plan for you. You don't have to be married, but you do need to be connected. You need friendships, meaningful friendships. You know why? Because I can promise you, you're going to have doubts about God's love for you. You're going to have seasons of discouragement. You're going to have times where the anger and resentment that you feel both towards God and towards other people is all-consuming. And you're going to find yourself in those times in a dark place, and you don't know how you got there, and you don't know how to get out. And what a friend does is it just brings a little light and a little warmth to a dark and scary season like that. And maybe it doesn't feel scary to you. In fact, usually when we feel that way, we feel insulated and we feel sort of self-satisfied in that position. But it's dangerous. It's not healthy and it's not helpful and it's not good. We need people who will check us. You know what I mean? We need people who will say, you're being an idiot right now. I love you, but you're being an idiot. We need people who will say, I know you're hurting, and I'm just going to sit with you. 
Just, I'm not even, there's nothing that can be said. I'm just going to be here present with you. It's not good, God said. It's not good for us to be alone. If you're alone, just know you don't have to be alone. There's gospel communities you can get involved in. You can invite somebody to go to lunch with you, even today. Just, hey, do you want to go to lunch with me? Find a group. I guarantee you there are people going to lunch after this today. Or maybe brunch if I don't get, you know, if I, if I get done too fast. In uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, they were given a choice. Adam and Eve are given a choice. I think that's important. It's important for you to know that you have moral agency. You have the ability to make moral choices. We believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a God who's in control of all things. But we also understand that we have the ability to make moral choices. The problem is, is that as a result of the fall, the only moral choices that we seem to be able to make are the ones that are displeasing to God. But Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they didn't, by the way, do anything any differently than you and I would have done. First, they twist God's word. Satan comes up and he actually directly quotes God. Did God say, don't eat it? And Eve says, no, it's not what he said. He said, don't eat it and don't touch it. If you do, you're gonna die. That's not really what happened. And then Satan does what he does with temptation, which what he does with temptation is to say, there's a thing that God wants for you. And rather than take God's path and God's plan and God's timing and God's way to get it, I'm gonna show you a shortcut. And if you take the shortcut, you'll still get it and you'll get it faster. And so we go, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do then. I'm gonna take the shortcut. That's almost always what sin is. You know, God says, I have a design for sex. The design for sex is in a loving marriage between a husband and a wife. Satan says, yeah, you can have it right now. And you don't have to take that long, painful path of cultivating intimacy and building friendship and waiting. You can just have it now. And we go, oh, okay, great. And so we take our own path. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Because Adam and Eve, you understand, were created in the image of God. They were made in his likeness. And Satan's line to them is, you're gonna become like God. They were already like God. They were made in his image. But there was a shortcut to wisdom. If you ever find a shortcut to wisdom, that is not a shortcut to wisdom. It's a shortcut to experience. And experience doesn't equal wisdom. Experience just equals experience. They got knowledge. They certainly did get knowledge. They were given a choice. And then uh, in verses 8 through 19, they're given the consequences. I have this, what I call a soft theory. It's not one that I preach about. Um, so this part isn't really sermon, okay? <laughs> but there's, there's a small part of me that thinks maybe the dinosaurs were, were the ones that were like, maybe they were part of the snake family and that's how they got wiped out. This guy's like, no, nope, you're just snakes now. You're all snakes. You have to crawl around on your bellies forever. <laughs> that maybe that's what happened to the dinosaurs. It's not really theologically sound and it's probably a result of too much cough medicine, but <laughs> I shared it anyway. They're given consequences. Um, one of my friends is a pain doctor, um, which it's an interesting field, you know what I mean? But when he was in college with me, I was complaining about something hurting and he was like, oh no, actually pain's really a gift. And I was like, I don't think you know what pain is. That is not a gift. He's like, well, just imagine if you could touch a burning hot stove and not know that it was a burning hot stove, you'd destroy yourself. 
And I was like, well, that's a very good point. Pain actually is a gift, and consequences actually are a gift. Moms and dads, and particularly moms and dads of young ones, can I tell you that the consequences that you give to your children are a gift to them? It teaches them yes means yes. No actually means no. There are real limitations in the world. And inside of those limitations is tremendous freedom and tremendous blessing. And outside of them is pain. Outside of them are ever-increasing consequences. God gave us consequences. And those consequences were a gift. I'm not going to walk all the way through all of the consequences that were given um, that's another sermon for another day. But in verses 20 through 24, we were given what I call a severe mercy. And I'm sure that's not original to me, but I don't know who said it first, so I'm just going to take credit. Um, we're not even, it's not even live streamed or anything, so nobody can really check me. <laughs> it says in verse 20, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. First of all, I just want to show you in verse 21 that Adam and Eve, of course, had made fig leaves coverings for themselves. So we see when they hide from God, after they sin, they feel shamed, they cover their nakedness, and um, God, you know, he comes to them. In verse 21, we see that the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. What, what, we, what we don't have explicitly spelled out is what actually took place, that in order for that covering to be provided, an innocent animal had to die. Something innocent had to be sacrificed in order to provide the better covering for the shame of Adam and Eve. And, and I, I hope that you remember the work that God had given to Adam that we already talked about. If you look back in chapter 2 and verses 15 and then 19 and 20, in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. In verse 19 and 20 it says, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So not only did an innocent animal have to die to provide that better covering, but we see that sin actually inverts the whole system Adam had been given the job of caring for the garden, and by extension, all the animals that were inside of it. His job was to care for them. His job was to lovingly provide for them. And now, because of sin, that animal had to die and had to provide for him. It's a complete inversion of what was supposed to be uh, taking place, what, what God's original design was. In verse 22, we see that death becomes both a consequence and an act of mercy. Verse 22, it says, The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. Um, originally, 
Genesis 2.16 says that Adam was prohibited from eating only from one tree. He was prohibited from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He wasn't originally prohibited from eating of the tree of life. Isn't that interesting? God didn't say, don't eat from both of those trees. He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now in verse 22, the consequence is gonna be death. You have to be driven out of the garden of Eden and you have to be kept away from the tree of life. And the reason that Adam and Eve had to be kept away from the tree of life is because had they eaten from the tree of life, they would have been living forever in an endlessly sinful state. Part of the joy of Advent is the anticipation of Jesus coming, right? We understand that Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior of the world is coming. The one who makes a way back to God is coming. But when we, uh, when we remember this moment, when we remember this moment, we, we have to remember we were made for endless, unbroken fellowship with God. That was the original design, but sin broke that. God's design wasn't for us to die. His original design in the garden were, was for us to live in endless, unbroken fellowship with him. But sin broke that fellowship with God. One of the necessary consequences was Genesis 3.19, where God says, you are dust and you will return to dust. That is like devastatingly, like just, pff, you are dust and you are going to return to dust. I sat with that this week just a little bit, just thinking about my own body, that someday this body will be dust. There's no getting out of it. There is no escaping it. That is the end of the story. But it's, it's not just this consequence. The death that we face is not just this consequence. It's also this great act of mercy. So we're not left in an eternally sinful state. That was also part of God's plan that we wouldn't be left in a perpetually sinful state. Verse, uh, verse 23 and 24 gives us the third part of this severe mercy, that the way is shut. It says, so the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Humanity's access to God was closed. The way back was shut. It was guarded by holy warriors and holy weapons. I don't know exactly what the flaming, whirling sword is, but it sounds pretty awesome. It sounds pretty devastating, like flaming, whirling sword. It's probably huge. And we also know that there are angels guarding it. And as I have previously stated, not precious moments. This is the season of precious moments. All your grandmas are getting out their figurines and creating a more prominent display of the precious moments, little angels, those sweet little cherubs with the baby faces. That is not the picture that we have. Hi, Phoebe. That's not the picture that we have of what angels are like in the Bible. They're terrifying in the Bible. Every time an angel shows up, it says the same thing. Don't be afraid. You only have to say don't be afraid to people who are afraid and who have very good reason to be afraid. You say don't be afraid to people who are freaking out. These angels are guarding the way, this flaming, as if, as if heavenly warriors weren't enough. There's some specialized weapon that is on fire and whirling around, also guarding the way. It's shut, you can't get back. 
You can't get back. We're cast out. There's nothing we can do ourselves to get back. You, you have to understand that for thousands of years, for thousands and thousands of years, this is the story of humanity. We had been in perfect, intimate fellowship with God. Sin broke it. And when sin broke it, God cast us out of the garden. And as if, as if it wasn't bad enough to be cast out of the garden, he put up holy warriors and a holy weapon to guard the way. And this is where the creation narrative ends, in brokenness, in isolation, and with humanity facing thousands and thousands and thousands of years of exile. But buried in the consequences and buried in the story is this small little seed and sliver of hope, this small little promise of hope. Hi, Phoebe. I like your shirt. It's pretty. Genesis 3.15. God said, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Other translations say he'll crush your head and you'll strike his heel. The only thing that humanity had for thousands and thousands of years were, were echoes and shadows and glimpses and like these long distance messages that came through intermediaries, this long list of regulations, all these things that they had to do in order just to be able to worship God not to have intimacy with God. You think about, like, it's, it's easy to read the Bible and to go like, man, it'd be great to be in Old Testament times and, you know, like, God's speaking directly with Moses face to face as, as like a man speaks to his friend. Yes, that must have been amazing for Moses. He was the only person alive in the world who had any kind of actual communion with God. Just one person on the planet experienced that. But you and I, because of what Jesus has done for us, the way back has been made for us. The path has been opened for us. It, it's been provided for us to have uh, intimate fellowship, unending intimate fellowship with God again. You understand that because of what Jesus did for you and what Jesus did for me, that we don't ever have to have broken fellowship with God. That the way is no longer closed for us. The setting for the Messiah begins all the way back in the creation narrative. It begins with everything ending. It begins with the access to God being closed. And that's why there was, for thousands of years, this hope of a Messiah this hope of a perfect sacrifice, this hope of someone who would save them and who would help them recover what had been lost. See, to be saved is not just for you to get out of heaven and to get into hell, but to get a whole new experience of life as you're living it right now. It's a renewal of all the things, a revival of all the things that have been lost and broken and dead. It's a giving again of Eden to you. It's a giving again of unbroken, endless fellowship with the God who loves you. The setting for the story of Advent is the broken fellowship that we experience with God. 
And if you feel that brokenness inside of you, like if you feel the break of fellowship with God inside of you, the most common reaction for us when we feel it is to say, try harder and do better. You know what I'm saying? Like when you sin, you're like, I gotta, I gotta do better. I, can, I gotta beat that sin. I gotta get over the top of that and get to the place where I'm never sinning anymore. And I wanna remind you that the hope of the Advent season is the hope of the gospel, is the hope of the Bible, is the hope of humanity. And it is not that you can make your way back because for you, the way is shut. You cannot make your way back. But Jesus Christ said to you and for you, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You wanna get to the Father, you go through Jesus. We bow your heads with me. I wanna invite you to just consider where you're at in your walk with the Lord right now. <coughs> Excuse me. To ask how you're trying to handle your sin. And maybe just to give you a moment to just be grateful that Jesus has come. Because for me, the way was shut. There was no way back. But Jesus became the true and better Adam. Lived the life that I can't live. Died the death that I deserve to die. Resurrected, giving me the hope of resurrection. I just want to say, Jesus, we're so thankful. <coughs> we're just so grateful. Apart from you, the story is hopeless and dark and frustrating. It would you just remind us this morning that you're the one who makes the way. need you and we love you and we pray this in your name. I want to invite you to grab the elements for the Lord's Supper that are available on the table over there. The Lord's Supper is open for all who are followers of Jesus to come and to take, to remind yourself that he's the one who opened the way back. Jesus said that when you take it, as often as you take it, you're proclaiming his death until he comes again. <coughs> Sorry. You're proclaiming his death. You're proclaiming his death is what opened the way back for me to be right with God again. So take it with a heart of gratitude. Take it with great joy. Take it remembering what was done for you. Also want to encourage you to give generously, to pray honestly, to sing loudly. This is our time of response. You respond as the Lord leads you.